Hey there, welcome back to the Path to Zion podcast, rediscovering the ancient way. Well, what is the ancient way? Well, for starters, it's being a, a, a humanity that realized the intent of the Father to have a people, to have a family who knows Him as He is, who keeps His commands, and studies to show themselves, show themselves approved empowered by the Holy Spirit who is brought to us by the one-way Messiah. That's the, uh, that is the goal here. And listen, I'm not going to waste one second. Go to pathdesign.com, do whatever you want. I don't even care right now. It's time for part two of the series From Nothing to the King's Table. We're looking at the life of Mephibosheth. He comes on the scene in 2 Samuel, and we see just a tiny bit of him that he fell when he was five years old. He was crippled, lame, broken. He had horrible events come to his life. He goes to dwell in the land of Lodabar, the the land of nothing. We talked about that in part one. It's the land of desolation. No pasture. The, The forgotten city where people who just wanted to disappear in their shame wanted to go and dwell and live out the rest of their days discarded and nothing themselves. We've looked at how we fast forward to David being king and and this chain of events that we don't have time to go into. He just comes on the scene and says, hey, is there anybody left in Jonathan's house? Does he have a lineage? They find Mephibosheth. They bring Mephibosheth into the king's palace. Mephibosheth falls on his face. He nafel, which I pointed out to me is quite significant. It's the exact same word that happened that that was the outset of his issue, the crippling. He nafel when he was five, and when he was brought to the king, he not fell again. I'm telling you, there, there, that is very significant. And right after he not fell in the presence of the king, he shaka. He prostrated himself in absolute reverence and awe of the king. The presence of the king, friend, will cause you to fall. The presence of the king will cause you to shaka if, in fact, you respond rightly to the nafel. I'm going to get to that here in just a minute. So again, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, he fell and became lame. I think this has to happen to all of us, and can we not just say this has happened to all of humanity? I'm thinking right now, man, light bulbs going off. That might even be the word used in the garden fall. That might be the word used in the garden of Eden. Kristen and I, my wife, we were talking about somebody help us with this. Do some studying or tell us if you already know. The Nephilim. I know they were fallen ones. Maybe all interrelated. I don't know, man. This, this never ends. That's why I'm saying, like, if you open the Bible and you stare at it and you close it up and, well, I guess I checked off that, li- that from my list today. Friends, there's something wrong. 
This is our food. <laughs> it's food. And it has so many layers, we will never in our natural human capacity be able to digest all of it ever. If it's all we did, we would not get to the bottom of it. So he falls prostrate. We're in 2 Samuel 9. And we're going to pick up where we left off. He says, in, in, in the response of, be, of coming into the presence of the king, he, Nafel, fell down before the king. And then, it's very distinctly defined, then, right after he, Nafel, so they are different, and we have to get that through our mind, he then, Shaka, he worshipped. He reverenced the king, even physically. Let me throw that out there. When was the last time you shakad Yahweh? When? When was the last time in the presence of the king, of King Messiah Yeshua, you shakah on the floor? When you literally, physically kissed the ground because of the absolute awe and reverence of being in the presence of the king? We, could, we, we have to ask those questions, right? And then he gets up, and he does it again in verse 8 of chapter 9. He prostrated, shakad himself again. He said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? So then he's told all these awesome things. Verse 11 at the end, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. He lived in Jerusalem. He ate at the king's table regularly, and he was lame in both feet. And y'all, I want to make this practical now. We've done a heavy dose of like just reading the text and talking about word meanings and some imagery and... And I understand not everybody reads the scripture and understands things the same. So I want, I want to try to, to take this down a little bit and like, let's just speak practical for the next few minutes to wrap up this very, very brief study. It's worth mentioning that from what we're told in the scripture, Mephibosheth's condition was not his fault. It wasn't his fault that he gets this horrible news about his grandfather and his father dying on the same day, the same moment, and in the haste of the person that was in charge of him, he falls at an innocent young age, and he's crippled. And he is then, at that moment, he is sent down a path that, you know what? Can we just honestly say it was not his fault? It wasn't his doing. We're told things in the Scriptures for a reason. He is literally, he, I would say, he's merely a, a product of horrible circumstances. And friends, that might be you. There are things in our life that come to us that we literally inherit that, you know what, are just bad. It's not, quote, our fault. And we can do several things. We can put the blame on other people. We can, we can walk in shame. We can walk under the heavy hand of, of just 
pity. And we can disappear in our shame and depravity even if it was not our own fault or because of anything we ourselves did and brought about in our own lives, we can disappear to Lodabar and set up camp there in our misery, in the land of nothing, where there is no pasture, where there is no good. And what are we told? Let's just use things as we're talking along here and the Lord brings things to mind. Look at all the promises in the Word of God about the provision of the Father to His children in what? Green pastures. Abundance. Blessing. Favor. Provision. Provision. Provision that comes from the Father to the people. That comes from the Good Shepherd to the sheep. A land of plenty. A land of provision. Green pastures, flowing waters. It is the the scriptural pattern of the provision of God to give us natural imagery of how he cares for his own. And and if we're not careful, the things that happen to us, even when we're we're merely innocent children now, if we're not careful, we fall, we nafel, and it sets the pattern for the rest of our days. And we simply, in our own condition, go off and dwell in a land of nothing, and that is our entire life. Until what? Until the king calls for you. And friends, this is not you, and this is not me. This is all of mankind. The call of the king goes out into humanity and says, hey, guess what? Come here. Come to my palace. Come to where I dwell. Come to my kingdom. Come to my domain. Come to my table where I'm feasting and I have already set a table for you. Now come. So they go and they get us. The king sends messages out to bring us in. And what what is completely dependent upon our response now is what happens next. Let's learn from Mephibosheth. Because Mephibosheth comes, he nafel again. And after he nafel, I would say redemption came through the falling. When he shakah. He reverenced the king. And he then what? I'm telling y'all, this is the pattern for our life right here in a ridiculously odd place. In 2 Samuel 9, verse 8, as we've already alluded to in part 1, he says, King, I am a dead dog. Why in the world would you care for me? Why would you receive me? And that's what I said in part 1 when I played this out with my son at our teaching time at breakfast. And I began to weep because you know what? I felt like the dead dog. You can say, well, that's just silly. It's kind of role-playing stuff with your eight-year-old. How in the world can the Lord speak? You know what? Because that's how we live our life. The Word is living and active, and it, it touches our emotions, and it touches our innermost cardia being. 
And it changes us, it moves us, it stirs us to another revelation of, you know what? Oh, great king, I remember I am a dead dog in your presence. I take my rightful place and I shakaw myself before you. I lay myself low and I say, oh, great king, I do not deserve to be here. And so I would say we have to be very careful that when that call comes from the king to come to his palace, we don't say, great king, I'm too broken. I'm not good enough. I'm too full of shame. I'm too wretched to be here. And then we stop there and we leave. Because you know what? It's this reverse pride of man. Oh, no, no, no. But listen, it's me, 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 me. It's self, self, self. It's, it's the improper introspection of self, assessment of self. If we look at ourselves in such a way that we're never good enough to come to the king, we're missing out on the promises and the covenantal realities the king has extended to us. And friends, that's what's shameful. That we would deny the call of the king to come to his table and appropriately be received by him because that's what he says. We have no right to say, oh, no, no, no. I'm too broken. I'm too miserable to be here. No. May we rightly shakah before him, which positions us to be received according to his regulations, his demands, and most of all, his perspective of who we are. Because he full well knows. And here's the other side, if you will, of this. And I see this in the nation that I live in, America. So may, may okay, so let's turn the, 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 <laughs> Let's just turn around the corner a little bit and look at this from another angle because we're talking about the shame idea that might keep us from coming into the king's presence and remaining because he deems us okay to be in his presence. He said so, it's done. Well, here's the other side that I see, and I see this so prevalent. I see this, sadly enough, I see this in the church more than I even see it in the world. I see and hear the world say, I'm not good enough. I'm too wretched. I'm too full of shame. I'm dark. I'm evil. I don't know God. Yes and amen. That's true. But you're not too far. You're not too vile. You're not too evil because the the call of the king comes out, period. But here's what I see within the church. I feel like the church does not realize she's the dead dog. I think she's forgotten she's the dead dog. I think she's forgotten or never got the revelation, which one I don't know and I'm not going to try to pinpoint, but one or the other, she doesn't realize the dead dog reality of her condition. She does not realize she is broken and crippled, lame, and living in a land of nothing. She thinks, by her actions, it would seem that she walks into the king's table and says, you know what, where's my chair? Where's my gold-plated throne of a chair, O king? I would, I would tell you right now, if we had to choose which was worse, I would choose the latter that I just shared. 
I feel like that prevails in Christian America. Where is our seat, O great king? We belong here. And both of these sides that I'm presenting are the same origin of issue, pride and self. One side plays out that you're not good enough, which is you, focus. The other side is convinced that you're good enough already to just walk in. You, focus. But here's the awesome thing, right? That's hope for all of us, including both sides of those views and vantage points. The solutions are the same. The solution, let's be singular, the solution is the same. We acknowledge what is true. Oh, great king, you're right. I'm broken, I'm crippled, I'm full of shame. I don't deny that. We are a broken, reprobate people who oppose the king. I deserve nothing. But your words override and supersede my own evaluation of myself. And I don't want to negate what you're saying is for me, because what you say goes, and I believe that, but here I am. Look, I'm down on the floor. Great king, please show me mercy. Thank you for your goodness. I'm telling you, that's why, that's why the shakah is not in the present church. I would say... Now, people get real excited. There's a whole lot of lights and smoke and, and, and yelling. But I'm not sure it's the shakah. It may be. I'm not the judge of that. I'm just saying from, from being like presently in the center of this age of culture, I think we have to really examine, is all the noise and lights and smoke and goosebumps really the shakah? Honor of the king. I don't know. I don't know the hearts of men. I'm just saying from, a, from sitting up in the, in the top level of the megachurch rafters, I'm just not sure. This is the shakah before the king. But the solution for all of us is the same. We acknowledge what is true. We fess up to the reality of what the king reveals, which is, yeah, I know you're a dead dog, but what I say goes. Because, hey, this isn't about you. This is about a covenantal promise on, that you just reap the benefit of. You just reap all the awesome benefits. So all you have to do is, guess what, Mephibosheth? Guess what, John? Guess what, Bethany? Or any, insert your name. You know what? Do what you're doing, and we can go somewhere. As the king looks at us prostrate before him in honor and reverence. Because guess what? I am saying, you will sit at my table. So this shows us the pattern of Yahweh. His desire is to take you, to take me from Nowhereville, which is self, with no provision, no life, nothing but shame, into his marvelous palace. Our condition is really, we're shown in this text, our condition is entirely irrelevant. 
What is, however, a prerequisite is our response when we come into the presence of the king. I am a dog. I have no problem with that. I taught on that last fall about the Syrophoenician woman and, and, and Yeshua's harshness towards her. He said it black and white, man, boom. She had no argument. She had no defense. She didn't say, how dare you call me that? She basically said, all right, all right, king, amen, but, <laughs> but, so may our response be God thank you oh great king thank you thank you and I think this is why praise and the shakal response to the eternal creator is lacking in the modern day church the exuberant like look Oh, can I, I, don't, I don't know if I should lift my hands right now. I don't know if I should lift my voice. And I myself still struggle with this. Well, why is that? It's not just because I'm shameful and I'm prideful and I, I don't want to be embarrassed. I say, let's go a little bit deeper than that and talk about it like mature spiritual men and ask ourselves, perhaps I have not yet encountered the awe and reverence and shakah of the king. Maybe it's a heart issue. Maybe it's a reverence from the innermost places that I need to establish deeper and deeper into me so that when I approach the king and I'm in his presence, I have got to respond. I have to. Why? I am encountering the king. So in 2 Samuel 9, 6, just to make this crystal clear and to wrap it up, to bring it to an end. Mephibosheth does what in the presence of the king? He nafel. There was redemption in the presence of the king in a response that was the same as what brought about his depravity, his condition, his brokenness. When that was brought to the king... It was immediately followed by the shakah, being laid, <clears throat> excuse me, being laid low, being laid low in worship and in reverence. And then just two verses later, he does it again. Friends, this has got to be the pattern of our lives. I'm telling you, this, to me, this is the pattern of men who truly know the king. I'm just being completely honest and may this, if this is from the Lord, may this get all up into you and challenge you. What does it look like? What does your physical body look like when you are worshiping the king? When you're in the presence of the king, in, in, in the makeup of, we are in physical bodies, we are physical and spiritual, we have got to function equally as on both sides, all wrapped up into one. But listen, all of this is presently housed in a body of flesh. The scripture is overflowing with the physical body being a demonstration of the inner reality of a regenerated man and Messiah. The lifting of the hands, the blowing of the shofar, the declaration of my mouth, the praises lifted up in the congregation. 
what does it look like for you? And I know everybody's worship style is different, but friends, do you think, do you think 2,000, 4,000 years ago, people had meetings and discussed worship styles? Well, Brother Bill, he likes things a little more quiet, so he worships the Lord with his hands in his pocket and his eyes squeezed tight. Well, Brother Jason, now he, he's a little more flamboyant, so he likes to dance a little bit. Oh, and there's Brother Samuel over there, and, you know, he likes to shout. And so, you know, it's all about your worship style. What do you prefer? Well, listen, friend, our preferences need to die. Because I'm telling you, what in the world would happen if a church today began what the, re, reinstated, if you will, began doing what the church that we read about used to do, which is the shouting of the people brought, brought terror to the camps of the enemy. And again, I will just insert this briefly right here, and I'll come right back out. That is why I believe the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are something that supersedes anything I can do in the natural. I believe there is more power, there is more authority, there is more energy and battle-wielding weaponry in the shout of my voice than any weapon I can wield in my hand. I believe there's something untapped for the people of God to reinstate where the camp of the, of the people of God declare a shout and the enemy runs. I believe that's what's for the church that will be coming in this last age. I believe the church that's coming to the earth is going to be the church that I read about that is in the Old Testament that would shout and walls fell down. Friends, that makes no sense in the natural it makes no sense, which what? Unequivocally demands we look at and say, what the people used to do, what the people used to say in the scriptures. The enemies of God, surely Yahweh is with them. Why? Because what they're waging war with makes no sense, yet they're overcoming victorious ones. And who will these people be? The ones who, like Mephibosheth, shakah before the king and say, my every single thing, every facet of my life, I am on the floor prostrate before you because I have no good thing in me apart from you, O great king. Praise you, king, for delivering me from a land of nothing, a wasteland with no pasture, and you've brought me in, O great shepherd. You've brought me in to your abundant life. And that, my friends, is why I want my entire life to be in to the King, Yeshua Messiah. I know my condition. I remember who I was. I remember I was a dead dog living in nothing and groveling in my shame. I remember. And that's why every single thing I give myself to will absolutely be walking as he walked. Yeshua Messiah is my pattern. I want to glorify the king. Why? Because I am now one of his sons. I'm one of his sons. What an incredible thought this is. What, a, what an incredible reality. I'm going to read this and then we're going to be done. Verse 
I can find it. I may have wrote a reference wrong. Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. We have been called to become a son of the king. So may we be just completely infatuated with this reality. Why? (laughs) Because we have been moved from nothing to sit at the king's table. We have been moved from nothing to sit in the presence of the king. Amen.